Some of you may have noticed Chris is not here today. <laughs> Chris has uh, had a wedding of a family member and uh, was involved with it, and it's kind of interesting. He mentioned to us at the worship design meeting that the woman who's getting married was their ring bearer in Tony's and his marriage. And then he said something like, it makes me feel old. <laughs> I almost gagged. <laughs> really? <coughs> That's a good start. Reading from the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, and he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said unto them, is it lawful for the on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And when he had looked around him with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch forth your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. The word of God for the people of God. Way back in the book of Genesis, in fact, Genesis 28, verse 16, there's a rather powerful statement. And I believe this statement resounds through the ages to our present day. And it says, surely God is in this place, and I did not know it. Now, if I were to put this into modern day words, it would sound something like this. God was here and I was out to lunch. Both of these statements underscores an oft-repeated happening in life, namely this. God comes near us and we are so busy, we are so preoccupied, so set in our ways, so tied up in our own agenda that we don't recognize God's presence. A seasoned senior angel was showing this brand new freshman angel a tour of the heavens. And the freshman angel was wide-eyed and just astounded, awestruck when he saw the vastness and the majesty and the wonder of God's incredible universe. When they came to the Milky Way, 
The senior angel said to the freshman angel, come here, son, and I want you to look down. You see that little blue planet? That's called Earth. And that doesn't look like much here. But a rather remarkable event took place on that planet some years ago. You see, the people of Earth had gotten off the track a bit. They were missing the whole point of their existence, missing the real meaning of life. So God took his only son and he sent that son into the world to save the people, to teach the people what God meant life for them on earth to be. Wow, that's amazing, said that freshman angel excitedly. You mean God to tell me that God sent his only son down into that planet? How pleased the people of earth must have been to receive him. I can just imagine they must have had a tremendous celebration for him on earth. No, said the senior angel quietly. Then he said, no, they tried to kill him. You see, they were so wrapped in their old rigid ways of doing things that when God's son presented a new look, outlook and ideas, they resented him and they tried to silence him. Blinded by the old, they missed the new and surely the Lord was in that place and they knew it not. God was there and they were out to lunch. How easy it is to fall into this trap. How easy it is to become so paralyzed by our usual way of doing things that any new thing is a threat, to, uh, threatens the life out of us. How easy it is to become so closed-minded that we're blind to the new. Blind by the laws and forms, we miss the force, and blinded by the narrowness, we miss God's nearness. There's a vivid example of this in the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark that I read this morning. As early as Mark 3, Jesus is already a marked man. The powerful religious leaders of the day were out to get him. The Pharisees and Sadducees and the priests were all so threatened by Jesus and what he had to say that they were watching him, looking for a way to trap him, to trip him up, and to do him in. Jesus went to the synagogue on that Sabbath as it was his custom to worship on the holy day. He wasn't going to be frightened off by these powerful religious figures, and they were there. In the synagogue that day, there was this watchdog team that was sent to follow him by the ruling religious Sanhedrin. And these people saw Jesus as a troublemaker, and they were keeping an eye on him. Now, no one can miss these Pharisees. You see, they were seated in the front row, and the front row was always reserved for the honored guests. It was the duty of this group to deal with anyone who was likely to mislead the people, define the law. It's interesting to note that this was the day of worship and they were not there to worship. They were not there to learn. They were there to scrutinize Jesus. 
and to watch critically every action and listen very cynically to his words. Also in the synagogue that day was a man with a withered hand. Now the Greek wording is used <coughs> to describe the condition of his hand suggested that he was not born that way, but he must have had an accident or an injury that caused that situation. Other writings tell us that the man might have been a stonemason. And he came to Jesus not to beg for food, not to beg for money, but simply to have his hand, which was the basis of his livelihood, restored. Now, if Jesus was a man that was easily frightened, he would have looked away in the other direction and ignored the man. Or perhaps through his disciples arranged to meet the man on the, another day because he knew he was being watched and he knew that if he helped this man, he would be in big trouble. And the reason for this is that this was the Sabbath day, the day of worship. The religious rules said that there would be no form of work done on that day. Work was forbidden and to heal was considered work. Now, if this were a life or death situation, that would be different, but a withered hand certainly not was not in this category. So what to do? The people present wondered among themselves. <clears throat> the Pharisees watched intently because this was a test as far as they were concerned. What would Jesus do now? Would he heal this hand on the Sabbath? If he does, he's breaking the religious law. Often, which was the case of Jesus, the real question that confronted him was more important thing than the religious law or a human being. Jesus turns to those gathered and says, what's the right thing to do? To take a life or to save a life? Now, don't miss the subtle point of this statement. <clears throat> Jesus knew that the Pharisees were plotting against his life. And so he asked the question, is it right to take a life or to save a life? The onlooker said nothing. And then Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, stretch forth your hand. And the man did as Jesus said, and he was healed. Now think about this for just a moment. The man was healed. He was made well, he could go back to his job, he could shake hands, he could have a new life. So what happened next? Well, obviously, you know, everyone rejoiced in the synagogue and they all lived happily ever after. Uh-uh, not quite. Listen to the last sentence of the story of the scripture. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Jesus had done a great thing, yet they did not rejoice. Instead, they decided to think of how to destroy him. And don't miss this. 
They conspired with the Herodians. Who were the Herodians? They were members of the court entourage of King Herod. And this shows you how desperate that the Pharisees were. Normally, they wouldn't have anything to do with them. They considered the Herodians as, as unclean as the Gentiles. But now they're so resentful of Jesus, so jealous that they prepare to enter with them an unholy alliance. The Pharisees plotted against the Herodians, uh, with the Herodians against Jesus to destroy him. That's how the story ends. You see, blinded by their hostility, they missed the holiness. Blinded by their hatred, they missed the healing that took place. To the Pharisees, religion was ritual, rules. Religion meant obeying certain rules and regulations. And if you kept the rules and regulations, you were good. If you did not keep the rules and regulations, you were bad. And who made up the rules? The Pharisees and the Sadducees did. And they were generally convinced that Jesus was a troublemaker and a threat to their own power. On the other hand, to Jesus, religion meant service, caring, loving, reaching out to others, healing. It meant love of God, and love of people. Ritual was irrelevant unless it produced love in action. Jesus spoke very strong words about the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and paraphrasing it goes something like this. You are hopeless, you religious scholars and Pharisees, frauds. You keep meticulous books, tithe every nickel and dime you get, and on the meat of God's law, but you fail when things like fairness and compassion and commitment and concern of others, the very basics you take very carelessly. Do you have any idea how silly you look writing the life story that's wrong from the beginning to the end and then nitpicking over every little comma and semicolon. To Jesus, the most important thing in the world was not correct performance of ritual, but the spontaneous, com compassionate answer to the cry of human need. But too often, we have to admit, even today, like the Pharisees, we're so blinded by the old that we miss the new. God comes near, and we're out to lunch. Sometimes blinded by the law, we miss a chance of love. That's what happened to the Pharisees in that day. They were so alarmed and upset that they saw Jesus break the Sabbath law, they were completely blind to the compassion that was a wonderful, loving thing that had been done. Surely the Lord was in that place and they did not know it. It happened in a city, southern city, some few years ago. According to the newspaper account, a man by the name of Steve and his wife Trudy were building a new home on the edge of a lake. 
Late one afternoon, they were inspecting the progress of that home while the daughter was playing out near a lake. They heard the daughter scream at the water's edge and where she had been playing, and their daughter, Allison, had been bitten by a three-foot water moccasin. There was no phone. They were out of the reach of cell phone. There was no way to call for medical assistance, so Steve and Trudy did what you and I probably would have done. Time was of the essence, so they scooped up Allison. They jumped into the car and made a mad dash to get some medical help. With the car's emergency lights flashing, the horn blasting, they frantically drove through the streets for the medical help for their daughter. For them, this was a horrifying time of life or death. Finally, they arrived at the hospital. They rushed the daughter into the emergency room where a talented team of nurses and doctors worked with care and precision to save Allison's life. But when the father came out of the emergency room, he was met by a police officer who ticketed him for five violations. Speeding, running a red light, although he did slow down and made sure no cars were coming, running a stop sign, reckless driving, and of all things, disturbing the peace. Fortunately, the judge suspended the sentences except for the fines and put him on probation. The story, I think, shows very vividly the weakness of legalism. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not fussing at the policeman or the law. I know that we have to have laws to maintain a civil society. The policeman was simply doing his duty as he saw it, but I'm simply saying that there are times when human compassion Human needs transcend the law. There are times when love and understanding must supersede the rules. And I'm glad Jesus was a child of grace and a servant of love rather than a slave to the law. Sometimes blinded by the law, we miss the love. And sometimes blinded by common practice, we miss common sense. The Pharisees were so trapped in their usual rigid ways of doing things, they were blind to the common sense of helping this man in need. There was this gentleman who had a new wife and went into the kitchen as she was preparing supper. And she had this roast, and she very carefully cut the roast in two. And then she placed one half of the roast in one pan and one half of the roast in the second pan and put the two pans in the oven to cook. And he said, why did you cut the roast in half and put them in two pans to cook? She said, well, I've always done it that way. But why? Because mother always did it that way. Well, the husband picked up the phone and called his wife's mother and asked her why she always cut a roast in half and baked the two halves of a roast in two pans. And her response was, because my mother did it that way. Well, then the couple had the next opportunity to ask grandma why she followed that particular way of doing it. Her explanation was very simple. 
She never owned the pan big enough to hold the entire roast. <laughs> now, this is a light illustration of a very, I think, significant point, namely that we can get so locked up in certain ways of doing things that we fail to consider whether they're right or wrong or even whether they actually make sense. And that's exactly what happened to Pharisees. Blinded by law, we miss the chance for love. Blinded by common practice, we miss common sense. And finally, blinding by our, blinded by our rules and regulations, our, doc, our doctrine, we miss the Savior. Many churches and individual Christians insist that their own way of doctrine is the only correct way. And they condemn others that see things differently. They say that communion has to be done a certain particular way. It has to be done at a certain time. It has to be done by intention. Or it has to be done by a cup. It has to be done with wine. Or it may be done with juice. It has to be done with wafers. Or it has to be done with bread. But only doing things their way is correct. Others argue baptism must be by immersion. You can't wash away the sins with sprinkling. Some churches believe in infant baptism. Some do not. Let me give you a vivid example, true examples, of conflict within some churches. In Tennessee, there was a Baptist church with a rather odd name. The church came from a larger church that in the process of their celebration of the services, they had the practice of foot washing. Then all of a sudden an argument broke out which foot was to be washed first, the right foot or the left foot. It became very heated and over a period of time a group of people left the church that believed in left foot washing and formed their own church. Believe it or not, the name of that church is the Left Foot Baptist Church. In Indiana, there's a church that received the gift of a piano. However, the administrative council said that there is absolutely no mention of a piano in the Bible. Therefore, it could not be allowed in the sanctuary. And the piano was placed in the basement and locked up. Well, over a third of the congregation insisted it be moved to the sanctuary to lead the singing. But the council members were not budged from the matter, and they left this group then that argued left the church and formed their own church. But picture this in your mind, would you? Here is a church that did not believe in having a piano in church and had it locked up into the basement. And here is the church that believed that they could have a piano in church but didn't have one because they couldn't afford it. Would the church that had the piano give it to the church that didn't have the piano? No way. Now I'm sure that God is present in both of those churches, but those people are surely out to lunch. On page after page of the scripture that God urges us to put love first, goodwill towards all people to pray for others, to help others, to serve others. Supremely in Jesus, God shows us that love is the way. Love is what God wants. 
but we don't quite trust love yet. We just don't feel it'll work, and so we tend to rely on power plays and rules and regulations, deceits and doctrines. Let me tell you something. God shows us that love does work. There at the cross, God showed us that love, not laws, not religious rites, not rules, not regulations, but love is the most powerful thing on this earth. Don't believe me. Look at the cross and the sacrifice that God made for his son for our sakes. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is here. Let us not be out to lunch. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting Lord, help us to realize that it is only through love. It is only through reaching out past rules and regulations and doctrine that we can bring the light and the love to others. Give us the courage, the wisdom to to understand that. We ask these things in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior.